This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Everyone is voting for Jack. Cause he's got what all the rest lack. Everyone wants to back Jack. Jack is on the right track cause he's got... Hey guys, welcome back to the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. I'm once again your host, Allison. I hope you enjoyed last week's part one of the Jackie podcast. Today is part two and I'm just going to jump right in. So we left off at the assassination. So I'm going to pick up at the funeral and kind of her mourning stage and all that. So here we go. I first wanted to start out with a quote from Lady Jean Campbell. It was on the London Evening Standard. It was right after the funeral. And she said, Jacqueline Kennedy has given the American people one thing they have always lacked, majesty. That pretty much sums up to me how well she did with the funeral. She, despite her grieving and what she was going through, put on a show for the American people. She modeled it after Abraham Lincoln's funeral. She liked the respect that was given to Lincoln during it and the kind of glamour of it, for lack of a better term. So she modeled it almost exactly after his funeral. And I'm sure we've all seen clips of it and stuff. It was amazing. So after the funeral, she really took it upon herself to create and a lasting legacy of Kennedy's presidency and their time in the White House. So she did an interview for Life magazine, and she coined the term Camelot. And by doing that, she was talking about JFK's apparently favorite musical and record to listen to, which was Camelot. And she basically convinced the American people that the entire presidency was this magical, incredible thing and experience that they would never, ever have again. (laughs) To some, that could be true. I think that President Kennedy did definitely accomplish some great things while he was in office. But all in all, it was a very short presidency with actually a lot of disaster and failure as far as, I mean, think about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I mean, there was definitely things that he struggled with. And there was also things that he really helped pave the way for and pioneered for. So she just wanted to make sure that because the assassination happened and his presidency was cut short and there wasn't the opportunity for him to continue on to build his own legacy, she wanted to make sure that she built that for the family and that it was magical. And she did. There is no doubt about that. It worked. But after the assassination and the funeral, she drank and she smoked. She laid in the bed all the time. She could hardly leave the bed. She cried all the time. Apparently, she contemplated suicide. I mean, it was just a horrible time in her life. Terrible morning. And it was something that most of us could never imagine what she went through. She stayed out of the public eye as much as possible. There was really no events that she did, except for she did attend one thing at the White House honoring Clint Hill, who was her secret service agent that obviously jumped on the back of the limo. So she did attend that for him. She did a public appearance on television thanking people for all their letters and support on January 14th, 1964. And I'm going to insert a clip from that here. I want to take this opportunity to express my appreciation for the hundreds of thousands of messages, nearly 800,000 in all, which my children and I have received over the past few weeks. The knowledge of the affection in which my husband was held by all of you has sustained me 
And the warmth of these tributes is something I shall never forget. Whenever I can bear to, I read them. All his bright light gone from the world. All of you who have written to me know how much we all loved him and that he returned that love in full measure. It is my greatest wish that all of these letters be acknowledged. They will be, but it will take a long time to do so. But I know you will understand. Each and every message is to be treasured, not only for my children, but so that future generations will know how much our country and people in other nations thought of him. Your letters will be placed with his papers in the library to be erected in his memory along the Charles River in Boston, Massachusetts. I hope that in years to come, many of you and your children will be able to visit the Kennedy Library. It will be, we hope, not only a memorial to President Kennedy, but a living center of study of the times in which he lived and a center for young people and for scholars from all over the world. May I thank you again on behalf of my children and of the president's family for the comfort that your letters have brought to us all. Thank you. So after that, she really, like I said, stayed out of the public eye, didn't really do any events or anything. In 1964, she sold her Georgetown home and moved to the 15th floor penthouse apartment, which was 1045th Avenue in Manhattan. And she bought that for $250,000 at the time. And she lived there the rest of her life. So it was a good spot for her to buy. She also worked on the JFK library and she did a few appearances honoring JFK over the years, but not many. There was one thing, I'm actually reading this book right now, so I thought this was something I definitely wanted to mention. She and Bobby were working together with William Manchester on the book Death of a President, which is going to be something put together basically by them to kind of further along Camelot a little bit and make a novel that would be very popular that would leave a lasting impression on Kennedy. So they get to work with William Manchester on it, but he writes a bunch of stuff they don't like. So they were in like legal battles and stuff from 1966 to 1967 with William Manchester trying to get him to remove things, and they ended up winning. I'm not sure. I think that he actually did have to leave in a few things that they probably wouldn't have liked, but for the most part, they got to edit out everything that he had written that they did not like. So now I'm going to flip to a different chapter and we're going to talk a little bit about Jackie and Bobby. Still going to do a podcast about their relationship in the future because it is a topic that I get requested to talk about a lot and one that I'm actually interested in. I just tiptoe around it a little bit because there's a lot of people that don't love the idea of Jackie and Bobby having had a romantic relationship and don't believe it, but a lot of people do believe it. I personally do believe it probably happened um, after the assassination, but yeah, it's something I tiptoe around, but I will eventually get to a podcast of it because I read a book called Jackie and Bobby, A Love Story. I've mentioned it a few times, and I just really enjoyed the book, and I mean, I thought it had definitely substantial evidence that something happened, but anyway, I'm going to do a little section here on Bobby and Jackie. So, according to Jackie, Bobby was the least like his father of all the Kennedy brothers. He helped her and her children tremendously after the assassination. He was kind of just like on call for them all the time, which spent so much time with Jackie and really stepped in to be the father that the children no longer had. He was just a constant support for them. Um, Jackie was really worried about Bobby's safety, though, running for president. Because when that came up, she was like, oh my gosh, no, like not again, basically. When he was asked by Art Butchwald, If he intended to run, Bobby said, that depends on what Jackie wants me to do. 
which like, yikes, you have a wife. <laughs> That's not okay. Uh, Jackie told him to just be himself and to not follow Jack's lead on everything uh, as far as the presidency goes. So then he gets assassinated and it's terrible and Jackie was horribly distraught over it, obviously depressed all over again. She was actually the one called in to like, quote unquote, pull the plug for him on his life support because Ethel just couldn't do it. So she called Jackie in to do it. And, uh, yeah, it was a terrible, terrible, terrible time for Jackie. She became very depressed again. She worried about her kids' safety, most of all. She said, if they're killing Kennedys, then my children are targets. I want to get out of this country. So she did. (laughs) She married Onassis on October 20th, 1968. And that provided the safety for her family that she needed, honestly, because he owned a private island in Greece, had tons of staff to keep him safe, and... I mean, it was obviously the safest decision for her and her family at the time. So she went back and forth between um, Scorpios and New York, kept her kids in school in New York and everything, but would go visit Onassis as well. So their marriage was really kind of, in my opinion, business. I mean, she it was to keep her safe, like I said, and also uh, there's a lot of money, lots and lots of money that old Aristotle had. So I think that that was probably a comfort for her as well. They did fine at first, but then his son was killed in a plane crash in 1973, and Aristotle basically blamed Jackie for it, saying that she was cursed and all this kind of crap. So they were not really together after that point. They didn't, like, legally separate or anything, but they were kind of separated. Aristotle ended up getting sick quickly after his son, and he died on March 15th of 1975 of respiratory failure in Paris. Jackie didn't get along with his only surviving daughter either, so they kind of duked it out too as far as money and stuff went afterward, and she ended up settling for $26 million after the marriage and death. So after his death, she split time between Manhattan, Martha's Vineyard, and Hyannis. In 1975, she became the consulting editor for Viking Press. She was there for two years, but she resigned because she was accused of holding some responsibility for Viking's publication of the novel Shall We Tell the President, which was set in a fictional future presidency of Ted Kennedy, and it described basically an assassination plot against him. So when she was accused of that, she was like, nah, I'm out. So she left, went to Doubleday Publishing, And she became an associate editor there, and she worked there until her death, well, a few months before her death in 1994. In the 1970s, she led a historic preservation campaign to save Grand Central Station, and past that, she even worked on a few other New York preservation projects and stuff as well, uh, protested a few buildings going up, things like that. There's actually a children's book written after her saving Grand Central Station, and it's so cute. So from 1980 to 1994, she was with Maurice Templesman. I think I said that right. I did. I'm going to say I did. <laughs> That's fine. He was an industrialist and a diamond merchant, and they had a really good partnership, and they were so cute, and they were together for so long, and just just a really good couple together. They never got married or anything, but they were just companions. So, in November of 1993, she was thrown from one of her horses, and she went to the hospital to get checked out, and they found a swollen lymph node in her groin, but they actually misdiagnosed it as an infection. Her health declined dramatically over the next six months because of a cancer diagnosis that she got in December. She ended up having more symptoms, and she was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a blood cancer. The fall also 
from the horse also really aided in declining her health as well. In January, she started chemo. She announced it publicly that she was ill and said that there was a good prognosis, but it progressed and she passed away on May 19th, 1994 in her sleep in her apartment. She was the age of 64. At the time of her death, she was survived by both of her children, John Jr. and Caroline, and three grandchildren. And she left an estate valued at around $43.7 million. So that pretty much wraps up the facts about Jackie Kennedy's life. I mean, there was so much more, of course, that I could have said or or reported on, but I picked some of the highlights and things that I felt needed to be told. I have so much admiration for this woman and all that she went through. What a strong human being to go through all the loss, all the public scrutiny, especially around the time of getting together with Aristotle Onassis. She really took a big hit in the press for that and stuff, but she didn't care. And she did her thing, uh, did what she needed to do all the time, no matter what. And I just am so inspired by her in every way. I think she handled herself with so much class and she was, like I said before in the last one, witty and intelligent. And I don't know, she was just a really well-rounded human being and a wonderful first lady and a wonderful woman for Americans to look up to. So that's really what I have for a Jackie podcast. I hope you enjoyed this little two-parter and that you learned something out of it. If you did learn something new, DM me. I want to know. I want to know if there's something interesting to you that you've learned. I would love to talk about it. Um, you guys have continued to send me messages and DMs and all the things all the time on Instagram, and I love getting them. It makes me so happy. I love to spark conversation with other fellow Kennedy lovers, so keep them coming. Please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps me so much when you do those things. It really does. Like, it it makes it possible for me to actually chart and to, you know, um, continue to have success with the podcast. So, please do those things. And if you haven't already, go to the link in my Instagram bio and check out my shop. I've got all kinds of awesome Kennedy-inspired merch that I designed myself, and I would love for you to go get some. So that's all I got. I will talk to you guys next week. Come on and vote for Kennedy. Vote for Kennedy. Keep America strong. Kennedy, he just keeps rolling up. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.